everybody and welcome to the Growing Up Cash, a weekly feel-good podcast where this week we talk about a lot of visual media and a brand new book. That's right, this week we recap Marvel Cinematic Universe's latest Disney Plus show, Loki, and we talk about the implications that show has on the grander scope. Of course, that is a little later in the podcast, so if you haven't seen Loki, you don't have to worry about spoilers. Uh, we talk about Space Jam A New Legacy uh, and that whole kit and caboodle. Um, I've recently rewatched all of Friends and we actually start the podcast with that. And then right there in the middle, we talk about the new adventures on graphic novel Crystal Kingdom. I hope you are all having a wonderful week. Um, it is very early in the morning when I'm recording this because I forgot to do this yesterday. And so here we are. And I am rather sleepy, but hey, you know what? Podcasts wait for no one, and I, I needed to get this out. But hey, if you want more sleepy content from me, uh, go over to patreon.com forward slash goingupcast, where this week I am uploading a brand new movie commentary track uh, for the 1944, or it might have been, been 42, like a 1940s classic Casablanca. My new thing is that I have a laundry list of movies that I feel like I've always meant to... I feel like I was supposed to have seen by now. Um, and Casablanca was on the list, so I decided to watch it and record my uh, impressions and comments live for the first time for the commentary track. So you can you can check that out over there. Casablanca is a great movie. In case you haven't seen it, I'd recommend it. Um, yeah, and uh, another quick bit of news... Um, coming up in about a month's time, I will be gone for a week, um, as I will be in Iceland. I will be in Iceland, uh, basically for the end of August, and I am very much looking forward to it. Uh, if you want to see all them cool Icelandic pictures that I will most assuredly be taking, follow me on Instagram, at GoingUpCast, that will be your best place to see awesome Icelandic pictures. Um, and then, of course, when I get back, there will be a Mac Daddy podcast episode where I talk about everything I did in Iceland. Um, it's going to be it's going to be very exciting. I can't wait to go. But we've got we got a couple of weeks before then. And uh, let's see what else is going on. Current audiobook is the Amber Spyglass, the third and final book of the His Dark Materials series. Uh, I'm about God a fourth, a quarter of the way through this book. Right about now, it's got like a, it's got 38 chapters in it, I think. Um, yep, 38 chapters. So it'll be with us for a good little while. Uh, but we're working our way through that. I already know what the next book is going to be. But if I have time, I hope to upload a another audiobook just kind of in the middle there. Um, especially for the week I'm in Iceland. So keep your eyes out for for a secret hidden other audiobook that may or may not hit the uh, hit the airwaves while I'm in Iceland. Um, if I can get it done. If not, then I'm teasing nothing. Anyway, that's enough of me jibber-jabbering. I will let you listen to the podcast now. Bit of background on this. Um, so, a little while ago, we spoke about the, the Friends reunion special. Um, and how it was... Uh, and in that, I talked about how, I mean, I grew up watching Friends. It was, it was like the show of my childhood. You know, people, 
Some people watched SpongeBob. Some people watched the, the, the Discovery Channel. I watched uh, adult sitcoms that were far too um, uh, grown up for me. And The Simpsons. Um, and you know what? You, the whole nature versus nurture thing. Man, that fucking nurture shit. Boy, does that influence quite a bit. Because Friends kind of shaped my sense of, of humor. And, um, well, uh, quite, a, quite a few things about me um, were, were shaped by Friends. And I hadn't seen the show for, gosh, let's see, probably since high school. So at the very latest, um, 2012 was was like the last time I saw Friends, we'll say. So it's been almost a decade since I had seen the show. And I thought I was never going to see the show again. You know, like, I, I can close my eyes and watch the entire show without really thinking about it. You know, it's just, it's always upstairs. And then the Friends reunion special came around. And uh, it did just enough to make me want to see the show again. Well, here we are, um, a couple of months later, and I have powered my way through all ten seasons of Friends for the one millionth and one time. Um, I even have done, uh, I, I have I have recorded um, essentially like a review of every season. Um, I'm not sure I'm ever gonna upload that. If people care, just let me know. I mean, it's done. Um, so, it's a, it's a completed thing. So, I could, but I don't know who cares anymore. Because um, the, the overall review of Friends is that it's good. And it still holds up except for a couple of key things. Um, well, not even key things. Um, just, you know, like, it's a little tone deaf. Uh, particularly with the, the, the way culture has advanced since then. It's not super great in terms of LGBTQA plus, um, inclusion, you know, the main cast is all white people, you know, it's not very diverse, there's all of those things, all of those things are true, and yeah, but as far as a show about a core group of friends living a decade of life, going through relationships, interpersonal conflicts, um, going places, getting children, you know, new jobs, all of these things, the show still holds up. There are a couple of things that, you know, could absolutely be updated, but as far as, like, I think the show can be appreciated as a product of its time and still holds up now. I mean, it's been, um, 17 years since the show ended. You know, it started airing the year I was born, 1994. I think I beat Friends by a couple of months. I'm not kidding when I say I grew up watching this stuff. My parents would put me and my brother to bed during Friends. Like, it was... I, I mean, yeah, it's that's that's what it was like. So, I, and the reason I know this is because when I got older and we had them all on DVD and we were watching them... Um, my parents were seeing new scenes that they had never seen before because they were actively putting us to bed when that scene was on TV, so they missed it, which I thought was great. And quick side note, the DVD versions of Friends are actually extended cuts. I think a lot of people know that. 
HBO Max does not have the extended cuts. The Blu-ray versions of Friends does not have the extended cuts. The only way to see all of Friends the way it was meant to be seen in its entirety with additional scenes, additional subplots, jokes and lines that were cut out and in some cases the episode that aired don't make sense because of scenes that were being that were missing. The only reason I know this is because I grew up on the DVDs and, you know, I know what was missing. So, if you want to see Friends the way it's supposed to be seen, you have to get your hands on the DVDs. It is the only way. They don't exist anywhere else. I've looked. I've checked. It's only on the DVDs for some baffling reason. So, yeah. And I would do it sooner rather than later because the way the whole streaming world is going, if you want these things on DVDs, you gotta, you gotta get them now. Um... Fortunately, we still have all 10 seasons on DVD, like, I think, at my dad's house. Um, so if I wanted them, I could go get them. But I just rewatched it, and since I know what is missing, I don't need to see it, man. On DVD. At least not anytime soon. I watched the finale seconds before recording this segment, and it made me cry. I mean, it you can't spend that much time with any character and not have like an emotional reaction when those characters say goodbye it doesn't matter that I've seen them say goodbye before or that I could if I wanted to whip right around and start season one again it still hits me in the gut every single time so yeah I love friends it's it's one of my all-time favorite shows and I I don't think there will there will come a day where I see it and I'm like, I don't ever need to see that again. I could watch it right now again if I if I had to. It's it's such a fun ride. And while I uh, while I could nitpick, and I did in my review, I nitpicked the hell out of this. Talking about each little storyline in each season and how Ross and Rachel are a terrible couple. Um, and the actual best couple from the show is Monica and Chandler. How... Um, Joey's, like, best storyline is towards the end of the show, um, especially in season nine when he has, like, these feelings for Rachel and it really lets Joey, like, stretch as a character. Um, the inclusion of, uh, Paul Rudd as, as Phoebe's husband in the end, like, it's, it's just a really, really nice show. Um, god damn it. I cried twice watching this show. I cried in the finale, and I cried when Monica proposed to Chandler at the end of season six. Those are those are the two moments that almost always get me, like Mufasa dying. I can't watch those scenes without crying. Um, yeah, I don't really have much else to say about it. It's just it's it's a it's a nice show. It it makes you feel things. The characters are all fairly lovable. Don't get me wrong. They definitely have their ups and downs and growing pains. I mean, Ross goes from like being a sad sack to an idiot with a monkey, to being an idiot who marries anything that moves, to hardly being like a character. There's a series of episodes kind of in the middle there where Ross almost becomes like a caricature rather than an actual person, um, which is kind of mind-boggling. And the rationales between some of their decisions are, are awful. And, um, hell, there's a couple of them that are just straight-up criminals. Um, 
that do actual factual crimes, like, as part of the story of the episode, and the ramifications of that never come around. Not the least of which being Monica and anybody who lived in that apartment doing so illegally because it was in their grandmother's name who passed away. And that never really gets addressed. Or the countless number of scenes of them hanging out at the coffee house when they should be, oh, I don't know, at work. You know? Does it represent reality? Hell no! It's a slice of life show. You know? It's just like, it's just fun stories with a likable cast in the best city in the world. New York. It's just, that's, that's all it is. So, if you go at it looking for, like, life advice, and don't get me wrong, there are some pearls of wisdom in there. There's some good bits of advice, um, and some interesting storylines. Like, I love that Monica and Chandler adopt at the end of the show, instead of, like, having kids, um, the, the biological way. Um, I thought that was, that was awesome. Um, I love that the, like, the main relationship of Ross and Rachel go through what they go through, you know? That relationship is ludicrous, but overcoming challenges as a couple is absolutely not. That is, that is bread and butter. Um, Chandler and Monica go through challenges and handle it like adults, while Ross and Rachel kind of just yell at each other like idiots. Um, and while I love the fact that they end up together at the end of the show, it doesn't really feel like they earned it. You know, it's they 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 should have spent season ten really like developing their relationship just a bit more and i know they have like all that history and stuff but uh, i don't know it took like two fucking seasons of dating and sneaking around and all that stuff to develop monica and chandler's relationship and that's why it's better because it's more developed you know they spend a whole year living together before they get the before they like get married even phoebe and mike got together way too soon um and on that note, real quick, uh, when Phoebe and Mike do get back together, a couple of episodes later, they celebrate their one-year anniversary. Does that does that count? If you date for, like, seven months, and then you break up for four of them, and then get back together, do you... Would you still... Would you count that whole thing as, like, a year of your relationship? Because, to me, what that says is you dated for seven months, then you broke up, and then you started dating again... But maybe you wouldn't have, like, a new anniversary date. Maybe you would go with the original one. I guess it's up to them and what they decide. But that one kind of was like, well, you guys broke up. So why? It's not consecutive. You know? I guess it's still an anniversary. I guess. You know? Um, it's it's your one-year anniversary. Or I guess it's the anniversary of the first time you went out. I, I don't know. I guess, you know, it's totally up to them. It's a great show, though. It's a great show. I'd recommend it. Although, here's the thing. I'm probably the worst person to recommend it. Because I am inherently biased because of my history with the show. I think objectively, you need to know a bit about what life was like in the mid to late 90s in America in order to appreciate the show. I think there's some references in there and some people, certainly. For some reason, Ed Bagley Jr. comes up like twice um, at very different points. And uh, I can't remember the last time anybody talked about Ed Bagley Jr. Or George Stephanopoulos. You know, just some just some references are thrown in there. Um, I will say this, though. As a, a full-blown adult who's living, living life, 
there wasn't there wasn't one reference that I didn't understand. And I appreciated that because Lord knows when I was a kid, there was a lot of shit that went whoop right over my head. Um, but I got them all this time. Got them all this time. Can't fool me, friends. Oh, stop talking about it. I could I could sit here and smile into the middle distance about how great Friends is until the cows come home. But the my, my final parting words will be this. Yes, it's got some problems. Yes, the characters make dumb decisions. Yes, some of these situations are completely infeasible and not at all realistic. But at the end of the day, the show is just a pleasant thing to watch. It made me laugh. It made me cry. I love it. And I will definitely see it again. At some point in the future, maybe when it's not so fresh, maybe in another 17 years, I will circle back around and pop friends on because at that point I'll have to blow the dust off my my fucking DVD player or whatever device I have at that point that can still read DVDs um, and just and just watch them. Or maybe I'll just find like a really good torrent and just have the DVD versions on my computer. That way they can exist in a digital format forever. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. It blows my mind that these things have been coming out for four years now, but the latest Adventure Zone graphic novel, Crystal Kingdom, has landed, and I plowed through it in, uh, well, technically two days, over the course of two days. I think it took probably, like, two hours to actually read. Um, it's a graphic novel. Um, but, just like all of the previous graphic novels, it does an excellent job of representing a podcast in graphic novel form. I love this series. These books are... I mean, I don't have many graphic novels in my collection. It's basically the Adventure Zone and Critical Role graphic novels, and that's it. Um, no, that's not true. I do have a Batman one, but that one's not very good, so I don't tend to think about one that one very often. But the Adventure Zone ones are incredibly faithful adaptations. I mean, of course they are, because they're being actively made by the people who made the podcast. Um, but the art is just so good. Um, and what I also appreciate about this is that it gives characters who I normally wouldn't have really cared about, like, in this issue, Carrie Fang Battle. Didn't really know much about them from the podcast, they're not really a big deal, I know they, like, get married at the end of the podcast, but for, for the sake of, for all of this, like, they just weren't really a character in my head, but they are drawn so fucking adorably in this graphic novel, with, like, their big eyes and their facial expressions and all of that stuff, and just some of the mannerisms that were able to like come through in the art of Carrie Fang battle has jumped Carrie to like my all-time favorite fucking character in the adventure zone because she's so fucking cute it is it is unbearable how fucking adorable they made this character who I knew nothing about and so I thought that was great um god damn yeah it's 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 awesome and these four graphic novels and I believe they're the next one is the 11th hour which is one of my favorite arcs uh, with like the western setting and then after that I think it's the the suffering games and then um, stolen century and then story and song so we got four more left which means over the next uh, in 2025 these graphic novels will probably be done I don't know if they're gonna like start adapting like amnesty I don't think I'd care too much if they adapted Amnesty, to be perfectly honest with you Adventures on Balance is of course like the fucking core the one I love to pieces. That being said, I am listening to Ethercy right now, which is the brand new one. That one's pretty good. Um, I've listened to all the prologue episodes, and the, the, they're setting this up as this kind of sci-fi uh, underwater world um, using the 5E framework of Dungeons and Dragons, and I'm like, that's that's exciting. And so I'm enjoying that one so far. I just need to kind of catch up. 
I guess. Um, but no, I think um, I think the the McElroys with the graphic novel and their new setting and stuff like that are doing great work. And if you are at all interested, I would recommend it. It is a fun read. Um, I think it's telling a legitimately interesting story that you don't need the background of the podcast to enjoy. That's the beauty of it. And as I've mentioned before when talking about these graphic novels, they are graphic novels that have the benefit of being written after the entire story is already known, which means little Easter eggs and hints. It is a cohesive, coherent, complete story. It's not telling part of it. It is telling all of it. The ending will come around and it will make perfect sense because of how it's being structured and how it's flowing. And I think that's awesome. The podcast, not so much. Podcast definitely, like, canon changes through stories, um, especially early on as Griffin's, like, figuring it out. Um, but the beauty of the podcast and enjoying that story live is watching it all coalesce into this amazing climactic ending. Uh, and we're getting that with the graphic novel. It is absolutely building towards something amazing, and I can't wait to get there. So, yeah, pick it up if you are in stores. And again, I'm not sponsored by anything. These are just my personal recommendations. I absolutely love it. Next thing in the podcast. Well, now that it's done, I felt like this is a good time for us to talk about the latest MCU show on Disney+. And the last one for a little while. Um, at least the last one of what I would consider to be, like, mainline story significance. Loki. And now... Before I get into this, if you haven't seen Loki, spoilers. I mean, I know it's a podcast and it's like hard to fast forward and stuff, but that's why I put this shit, hopefully, if I remember, at the end of the podcast. So if you haven't seen it, you can just turn it off or whatever. I don't fucking know. We'll, fi we'll figure it out. Um, but let's talk about Loki. I'm just going to talk about all the episodes um, and the implications and all that stuff for the, for the grander scope. Of, of this uh, glorious thing known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, so we get introed, right? And we're introduced to this thing called the TVA, which you could put a gun to my head. I can't tell you what that stands for. And we're introduced to Owen Wilson's character of Mobius, Mobius, Mobius. Um, and in case you didn't know, yeah, that's his actual name. His name is Mobius, Mobius, Mobius. Um, Owen Wilson does a wonderful job in this show. It's, it's just fucking... A solid performance out of Owen Wilson. Probably one of the one of my you know top three Owen Wilson performances. If I had to rank them, this is up there. And uh, Loki, our Loki, picked up the Tesseract and disappeared during the events of Avengers Endgame, and then fractured the timeline. So the TVA, who are responsible for ensuring the health of the timeline, brought him in as a variant in order to purge him. But then Owen Wilson steps in. And he's like, "Hey guys, we could really use his help on catching this other variant." Wow. Um, Owen Wilson never says wow in the entirety of the show, which is a goddamn shame. Um, and I expect that to change in season two. I also want him to say crazier than a road lizard because he says that quite a bit in, in movies as well. Um, crazier than a road lizard. Anyway, um, with Owen Wilson impressions, you just have to kind of make it a little soft and a little nasal. And then you got Owen Wilson. Anyway, um... Loki helps them track down the variant, which, surprise, surprise, turned out to be a doppelganger named Sylvie. Um, and Sylvie, uh, for me, was was sometimes really strong and sometimes not. Like, they started off as kind of like a, oh, hello, I know everything about everything. And then they became, like, really incompetent and didn't know anything about anything. 
and then towards the end they felt like they didn't really have like like the the show's really focused on like their like life's goal to figure out like who's behind everything you know who's at the top of the ladder and when they finally get there they don't have anything significant to contribute uh, and it really just seems like they were a pawn in all of this so I felt like Sylvie was a bit of a missed opportunity but who knows maybe in season 2 we'll get more development for Sylvie um, and we'll find out but uh, the the first couple of episodes are, are, are really solid the whole show is in- incredible um, season or episode three, uh, where we go to a planet called Lamentus, um, where it is actively being destroyed. Loki and Sylvie start to develop a little bit of a, a little bit of a romantic thing going on, um, and then uh, they go to the, um, the Timekeepers, the supposed leaders of the whole TVA in episode four, and turns out the Timekeepers were just a bunch of fucking robots. And they're like, well, if the ro- if the timekeepers are fake, then who's really behind this shit? And then both Loki and Sylvie get purged and are sent to this thing called the Void, uh, where this giant smoke beast named, like, Eliath or something like that exists and has the ability to wipe things out of all existence. Uh, he meets a bunch more Loki doppelgangers, a lot of hijinks ensue, and eventually he and Sylvie enchant Eliath in order to open a passage to the literal end of time um, where they encounter He Who Remains, uh, who is played gorgeously by Jonathan Majors, um, who I and all basically the whole internet first encountered with Lovecraft Country, uh, where he does a wonderful job. But I honestly, I vastly prefer this performance than I did Lovecraft Country, mostly because I prefer this show to Lovecraft Country. But that's that's just me and, and my jam. Um, and it looks like Jonathan Majors... Uh, is portraying Kang the Conqueror, who is a multi-dimensional man of the future, um, or being of the future, I should say, who, uh, at least in the canon of this show, is at constant war with his other doppelgangers for total control of the multiverse. Um, this version of Kang, um, or as he's referred to as in this show, He Who Remains, uh, exists outside... Um, the multiverse as he has severed this timeline and cut it off from the universes around it in order to protect the timeline um and his performance is wonderful and loki and sylvie have it out because sylvie wants to kill this guy for screwing with her life and loki's like we don't know the ramifications of doing that this could open up the door to something much much worse sylvie doesn't care kills this guy and he goes See you soon. And then it dies. Um, and then the multiverse fractured into a million different ways. And that was the end of season one. That was a five minute wrap up of what Loki was all about. It is my favorite MCU Disney Plus show to date. It I prefer this to WandaVision quite a bit. Um, not that I didn't enjoy WandaVision. But I mean this one to me told a really nice concise short story um six episodes in and out each one's less than an hour long um it's it is a a phenomenally well put together show the music's really great the the effects of this show are are you know movie level quality tom hiddleston kills it uh in his performance there's a lot of really strong emotional development 
for every character here. Um, and the implications this show has for the grander multiverse of the MCU is kind of staggering. Because up until now, it's all been one timeline and all pretty well concisely kept in, in one little focal point. And now all bets are off. And the, the entire thing is as wide open as you could possibly have it. We can have characters come back from the dead because they're in another multiverse. We can have actors reprise characters they played in other movies owned by different studios because it's part of the multiverse. Like, we could very well see Patrick Stewart come back and play Xavier. We could absolutely see that. That is 100% possible in this, in this new thing that we've got going on. Um, and we're going to see hints of this in the shows that follow. I'm not sure how much bearing the multiverse... Um, and it's shattering is going to have on things like She-Hulk or the Miss Marvel show. But now we know where the Multiverse of Madness comes in for Doctor Strange 2. Um, and we know that Kang the Conqueror will supposedly make their debut in Ant-Man 3, Quantumania. That, that's been known for a minute. Um, and my the internet right now is basically saying, what the fuck is Ant-Man and the Wasp going to do against Kang the Conqueror? Um, I'm guessing that version of Kang, the one that's introduced in Ant-Man and the Wasp, is going to be the, the Kang that poses, like, the threat to certain levels of the MCU. Because what we have going on right now is we have a lot of areas, we have tiers of the MCU, essentially. Um, and the way it breaks down is you have street MCU, where you get small, smaller characters like She-Hulk and Miss Marvel... Um, just kind of doing the do, being you know, your friendly neighborhood protectors, right? They need a threat. And then you've got, uh, like, the Mac Daddy Avengers, um, and they need a threat. Uh, so we're talking about, you know, your, your um, Falcon and your Winter Soldiers, you know, like the, like the kind of the bigger name ones. Captain America and all that crap. Uh, then you've got your Cosmic MCU, where we've got, like, Guardians of the Galaxy, um, and we know already that the villain for Guardians is Adam Warlock because they were introduced at the end of Guardians 2 and it seems like everybody forgot about that. And then we've got uh, fucking Kang who is a fairly significant threat primarily due to numbers, you know. Um, but they are the multi-dimensional threat to the sanctity of not only this timeline but all timelines. Whether or not, I mean, we knew going into phase four, uh, which to me says, I'm pretty sure Kang is going to be the equivalent to like Loki in, in phase one, where they were present in a, like at least one movie before they were like the big bad for phase one. Um, I imagine Kang won't be with us for very long as a villain, but they will be a significant challenge to a handful of the MCU members. My money currently says that we're going to deal with Kang for a while. We already know about Madam Hydra, since she has now appeared in two MCU things. She was in Black Widow, and she was also in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, and they're going to be a problem for, like, your Miss Marvels and your She-Hulks and your Street Marvel. Um, then you got Adam Warlock for the Cosmic, and now we have Kang the Conqueror um, coming in, and... It's it's really cool, the direction that the MC is going. And we know at the end of Phase 4, or the beginning of Phase 5, depending on where they draw the line, uh, we'll get the Fantastic Four movie that will set up Galactus and Mount Doom. 
not Mount Doom, Doctor Doom. And the pair of them will pose a very significant threat to the MCU and probably set up things like the New Avengers and Secret Wars and all that crap. Uh, we'll be we'll be heading towards. Um, but I thought Loki was phenomenal. Um, I mean, solid nine out of ten. The there are a couple of character choices that keep it from being a perfect score. Primarily looking at Sylvie. Um, I personally love the romantic story between Loki and Sylvie, regardless of the fact that it's a version of yourself. Um, I think that's you know that's that's fine. Is it incest or masturbation? You make the choice. I, although I would be lying if I said, like, a female version of myself showed up one day and I wouldn't be like, damn. You know what? You and I have a lot in common. Maybe you want to read an audiobook together. You know. Um, but no, Loki was awesome. And if you haven't seen it, well, I just spoiled it for you in, like, 12 minutes. But I would still very much recommend seeing it, especially now that the whole thing's out. Um, and this is the last MCU show uh, of... Story significance for a while. The next show is an animated uh, list of basically what if questions. Um, like what if uh, Peggy Carter got the super soldier serum instead of Steve Rogers. It's that. I don't see how that has any bearing on the MCU. Besides like introducing potential alternate timelines that they could then bring up later on in, in the actual movies. Um, and actually... I mean, Marvel does a lot of things, right? Bringing in the What If show after Loki so people can start thinking about, like, different variations of these characters is brilliant. Because that's exactly what What If is going to do. It's going to present different storylines and different characters and different ways of portraying these characters to get all of our collective gears turning about this new multiverse we find ourselves in and being like, hey, what if Captain America was like that? Or, hey, what if, you know... Uh, Black Panther or Killmonger saved Tony in Iron Man 1. What would that even look like? And now we're going to get it. And because it's an infinite multiverse, all of these universes could... I mean, ex all of these universes exist. Every universe presented in What If is technically canon because of the infinite multiverse we've just opened up. That's how that works. So, yeah. Whether they're of story significance is completely up to Marvel at this point. But they are technically canon. So, even if they are just a bunch of hypotheticals, Uatu, the Watcher, uh, is the one who's posing these questions, and he is also canon. Um, and fun fact, Kang the Conqueror and Uatu, the Watcher, are the first two uh, MCU characters to show up in the MCU after the reacquisition of those intellectual properties from 20th Century Fox. In case anybody was wondering, because Lord knows I... Uh, I was I was doing that sort of thinking. Yeah. No, Loki's great. You guys gotta watch it if you haven't seen it. It's so fucking good. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. So, they decided to make a new Space Jam movie, didn't they? Couldn't leave well enough alone. Couldn't leave that fucking glorious piece of cinematic brilliance in the 90s, could they? They had to bring it into the fucking 20s. But here we are. Space Jam, a new legacy. Because LeBron just couldn't keep his dick out of this one, could he? Now, I don't want to shit too much on LeBron. Because I'm sure as an individual, he's probably great. I don't know anything about LeBron. 
um, to be perfectly honest with you. But you gotta admit that this movie is gratuitous in an obscene way. And it's gratuitous in a lot of ways. It's obscene with how fucking much of a big deal LeBron thinks he is. Because he produced this movie, gang. This was a LeBron James-led effort to make this shit happen. Why he wanted to do it, I don't think we'll ever truly know. I like to think he tried to do it because this was like the one thing that Michael Jordan had on him. Was that Michael Jordan starred in the, as of right now, highest grossing basketball movie of all time. Which was the original Space Jam. I don't know how this movie's gonna do in comparison. I think by the default of it being on HBO Max, it's probably gonna do okay. I don't know how these movies make money. Um, but that's how I watched it. I watched it on HBO Max. Um, and they they made this movie. In, in terms of like trying to get this movie to be made, they even had like brief periods where they were gonna spin off uh, and have it be like Tony Hawk and the Looney Tunes, you know, and it'd be like a skater movie. Um, and that, as a franchise, has some legs. I think that's great. Um, one thing I will, uh, say just kind of for this, um, I appreciated the inclusion of some of the WNBA's biggest stars in this movie. I thought that was really fucking smart, and why wasn't that in the original? But, I mean, the original was much more, like, narrowly focused, um, than, than whatever the fuck this is. This two-hour ad for HBO Max and Warner Brothers properties, um... It amazes me that it was so shameless. It truly is like Ready Player One with basketball. Every Warner Brothers property, from the old school classics of Casablanca to the new school shit of Harry Potter, the DC Universe, Iron Giant, King Kong, the Jetsons, the Flintstones, everything on Boomerang, and then of course the Looney Tunes, were in attendance for this film. This weird, digital, not-basketball showdown between LeBron and his kid, Dominic. I'm pretty sure it was his legitimate family in this, just like Michael Jordan in the original Space Jam. That was his actual family. And you could make fun of the acting, but why bother? It's like kicking a puppy. It's not hard. Um, That being said, they do okay. You know, it's not the worst acting I've ever seen out of LeBron or his family. I thought they did fine. You know, they they did as good a job as the original family in the first film. You know, is it going to win awards? Hell no. Is it acceptable for this movie? Hell yes. It's fine. I mean, nobody's going into Space Jam and New Legacy expecting this to be like a fucking cinematic classic. If you think this movie's good, you're, you're not going to be happy when you leave it two hours later. That being said, it is not the worst movie I've ever seen. Not by a long shot. In fact, it actually hit a couple of emotional notes that I appreciated. It's basically the exact same plot of the first film, so it's not breaking any new ground there. Um, but it's fine. I mean, you, they, they learned the same lessons. Um, but let's talk about it as like a movie, and then we can kind of narrow in on some of these tropes. So it starts off with my, uh, Michael. Original Space Jam's bleeding in. It's uh, It starts off as LeBron being a kid, uh, playing a Looney Tunes Game Boy game, which no one was doing that. Um, and his coach was like, you gotta keep your head in the game. 
you can you have the makings of greatness in you and if you get distracted by video games you're never going to be a great basketball star and then of course he became lebron um and you know started with the Cavs, went to the heat went back to the Cavs, and then joined the lakers and it actually was surprising to me how much emphasis was actually put on lebron's basketball career like, when it was Jordan, we got, like, hints of, you know, him being in the Bulls and, like, the flashbacks and at the end of the movie when he comes back to basketball and a little bit of his baseball. But nobody's sitting there being like, well, it's Michael Jordan, winner of oh so many championship awards. You know, nobody nobody said that. You know why? You know why nobody said that in the original Space Jam movie? Because it didn't need to be said. It was Michael fucking Jordan, the greatest to play the game. You don't need to sit there and list out his fucking accomplishments. Michael knew how big a deal he was. LeBron, who produced this movie, apparently thought it was necessary for him to just fucking lay it out. You guys want... Like, the number of times he's called King James in this film is kind of absurd. This movie truly is all about sucking LeBron's dick. It's... absurdly gratuitous. And... I don't, I don't get it. LeBron is an excellent basketball player from what I know. You know, he's, his name's going to go down in the echelons of history as one of the greatest to play the game. That's already, like, that's, that's committed, you know? Just like Kobe, you know? Just like Shaq. These people will endure the test of time when it comes to great basketball stars. We, we understand you're good, LeBron. You don't need, you didn't need to do this. But did it, they did. Um, and then there is this, the bad guy is an algorithm made by Warner Brothers, who has the, <laughs> stop me if you've heard this one before, great, clever name of Al G. Rhythm. I'm not making this up. Played by Don Cheadle. And this is kind of fun in that I don't think I've ever seen Don Cheadle in a villain role before. I've only basically ever seen Don Cheadle in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Hotel Rwanda. Um, where he was a fucking hero. So, yeah, so seeing him in a villain role was, was fun. They do a pretty good job. It's a little cheesy, it's a little over the top, but it fits the fucking movie, so who cares? Anyway, uh, LeBron's kid, Dominic, wants to make video games, and he built his own game called Dom Ball, because the kid's brilliant when it comes to naming things. And it's like basketball, but with, like, power-ups and shit. Stop me if you've heard that one before, NBA Street. And LeBron's not good at it because it's not basketball and he's all about the fundamentals, which is fine, you know. If you can't, that, you know, that actually kind of fits with my own philosophy of, of, like, life in general. If you can't get the fucking basics right, then I don't care how fancy you can get, but, you know, you gotta have solid fundamentals. Not, in bas not just in basketball, but in, like, fucking anything, you know. If I go to an ice cream shop and they've got a bunch of weird-ass flavors but I order their vanilla and their vanilla tastes like shit. I don't give a fucking flying cock what their other flavors are because you couldn't get the basics right. How, so who cares about the special shit? You gotta, you gotta have a firm foundation before you do anything else. And LeBron and I agree on that. You, it's all about the fundamentals. You gotta get that foundation right. And of course, that's gonna come around and bite him in the ass later on. But for right now, he just he does that. And then he goes to a meeting at Warner Brothers with Sarah Silverman and name escaping me steven yoon i think was was that who that was um let me steven steven yoon yeah that's who that was uh the guy from walking dead 
Um, for some reason, the goddamn Warner Brother reps in this film. But um, they the algorithm presents this this idea of uh, uh, LeBron partnering with Warner Brothers to make like Batman versus LeBron and LeBron of Thrones and LeBron in the Chamber of Secrets, all of which are objectively terrible ideas. There's no way around it. Like I, no one's gonna see those movies. No one's gonna see those movies. Um, and LeBron turns them down, and the algorithm's like this is bullshit. And so he digitizes uh, LeBron and his son into the what do they call it? The Streamerverse, um, which is again a terrible name. Uh, and of course, Algae Rhythm takes his kid away. And is like, I'll give you your kid back if you beat me in a basketball tournament because the movie has to happen. And so LeBron gets sent down to Toon World. And this, I thought, was a legitimately interesting story thread and actually made me feel things. Bugs was the only Toon in Toon World. The algorithm showed up and gave the Toons a chance to explore the Streamiverse. And they all fucking bailed and left Bugs alone. Bugs was the only one who stayed put. And Bugs did not handle the solitude well. He made, like, fake versions of all the other tunes out of, like, pumpkins and shit. And we don't know how long ago the tunes left him. And there's a good chance that Bugs was alone for, like, a while. Um, and you get hints of that. Like, as soon as LeBron showed up, Bugs dressed him up like fucking Elmer Fudd. And reenacted the rabbit season, duck season thing. Like, instantly. It was He didn't even hesitate. I felt so bad for Bugs. Um, and then they go on this great little montage of collecting the tunes in order to play basketball. LeBron's being like, we gotta get Superman, we gotta get King Kong, we gotta get Iron Giant. And they don't get any of those guys, they just get, you know, the tunes. Um, and uh, I, I enjoyed that sequence. Um, seeing the... It was, again, gratuitous. Because Warner Brothers is basically going like, look at how many intellectual properties we have. <laughs> and I'm sitting there being like, ah, you're cute. You're trying to, you're trying to one-up Disney, aren't you? You're trying to sit there and be like, we got things too. Even though almost all of our intellectual properties that were showcased in this movie are fucking dead. I'm looking at you, Game of Thrones. I'm looking at you, Harry Potter. There's no new shit, like... Nobody gives a shit about the new Game of Thrones prequel sh show. You killed that fandom dead. And these new Harry Potter movies suck. So Warner Brothers needs to fucking stay in its lane and understand that it's fucking, like, quality of stuff it's produced of late is piss poor. Especially this fucking movie, which got like a 30 on Rotten Tomatoes. This movie objectively is terrible. I still enjoyed it, but that's beside the point. Anyway, they collect all the tunes, and we see the fucking Warner Brothers' greatest hits. They pick Lola Bunny up last, and she's busy trying to become an Amazon. And I loved that sequence. I thought that was great. The animation in this movie is actually quite good. Um, the the all the 2D animation of them going through like the different universes. The CGI is pretty good as well. Actually, like the vast majority of this movie takes place on a green screen. That's not difficult to see, um, but it looks pretty good. I'd say the the like the things that looked the worst for me were the goon squad. Um, I thought they looked not the best. They're not terrible, but they're not the best. Um, and it's not necessarily that they're animated poorly. It's just design-wise, I wasn't into it. Um, but that could just be me and like my my own thing. But whatever. 
Um, they gather all the tunes, and LeBron's trying to teach them to play basketball his way with the fundamentals. Um, and it, it doesn't fucking, it doesn't work out, you know, especially because they weren't playing basketball. And that's upsetting to me because this isn't a basketball movie anymore. Space Jam was basketball. Sure, it was loony and do- toony and dumb. And the final score of that game was like 76 to 77, which in terms of a professional basketball game is pretty bad. It's pretty low scoring. Um, but that was a basketball game. That was a basketball movie. There was a simplicity to it. And I enjoyed that. This isn't basketball. The game they played was not basketball. There was a ball and baskets, and that's where the similarities end. Because of all the dumb power-ups and the style bonuses, it wasn't basketball. You can't call it a basketball movie. It's a. It's not even a sports movie. Because it's not a sport. It's a video game. If anything, it's a video game adaptation of a movie that just happens to have LeBron. So in my view, he didn't beat Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan won a basketball game. Granted, with some chaos and some dumb shit, but the game they were playing was still raw basketball. This was not basketball. This had raw dumb shit built into the fabric of the game. Um, But, I mean, you can compare the original movie and this movie, like, scene for scene. Especially, like, the final dunk and all that stuff. It's it's kind of insane. Anyway, um, Goon Squad are wiping the floor with the Toon, Toon Squad. Um... Also, you couldn't come up with anything better than Goon Squad. The fucking Monstars was beautiful. It's a great name for for the enemy team. The Monstars. Like, it's, oh, it's so good. Goon Squad kind of sucks. Especially because they're called the Toon Squad. So why would you call them the Goon Squad? Because that just says somebody in a boardroom one day was like, We gotta come up with a name for the evil basketball team. Well, good guys are called... Toon Squad? Let's call these guys the Goon Squad. Give that man a raise. He killed it. It's not... It's probably exactly what happened. How many people... This movie was written by one, two, three, four, five, six people. With a story by four of those people. But the screenplay took six people to write. Six people wrote this movie. And all of its... Out of date internet references. Don't do that. Here's my advice for you. Don't write internet references into your movie. Because no matter what you do, they will be out of date by the time the movie comes out. No movie has a quick enough turnaround to still be relevant. It's never going to happen for you. That's not how this shit works. So, you, you missed it up. Also, I personally would have loved it if they got like Humphrey Bogart to play on like the Goon Squad. I was looking at you, kid. You know, just like... What the fuck are you doing here? Like, pulling in some, like, old school references from movies that, like, nobody remembers. That would have been great. I think that was Humphrey Bogart who said that line. Anyway, they were losing by halftime. And then LeBron's like, wait a minute. You guys are tunes. And I've been having you play like me. But you're not me. You're you. Play like yourselves. And then they do. And they're able to bring it back from a thousand point deficit. Technically, it's like a thousand and two point deficit. Um, and wouldn't you know it, they come back and win the game. And everybody learns some life lessons about being yourself and how important family is. Um, and then there's a little bit of a fake out where it looks like Bugs is going to die. But since these are cartoon characters, they can't be killed. There you go. That's also the logic of why 
the Looney Tunes make the best basketball team? Because every other universe that was presented in the Streamiverse, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, DC, has rules. It has powerful people in there, but those powerful people still have rules. Superman can still be brought down by Kryptonite, and Superman still has, like, physics and shit to worry about. Looney Tunes and cartoon characters of that ilk in general are the most powerful creations ever. They're basically gods because they can do anything and they and nothing can kill them. The Animaniacs are are gods. That's that's what a that's what a tune is, you know? They are they're living breathing gods. So, yeah, you can't beat the Looney Tunes at anything. Because they will warp the fabric of reality without you even realizing what the fuck is happening constantly. So that's why the Looney Tunes win, you know? Bugs Bunny could beat anyone in a fight because the rules of the fight don't apply to Bugs Bunny. That's that's the thing with with the cartoon characters. That's they can do they can do literally anything. They can that's just that's it. You know, that's full stop. Who win a fight? Bugs Bunny or no? Bugs Bunny. Every time. Every fucking time. Now, if it's fucking some dude against a bunny, the dude's probably going to win, but only if he can catch the bunny. You know? But anyone against Bugs Bunny, and Bugs Bunny will win. That's how it goes. And so the Looney Tunes and LeBron James win. And then LeBron James goes back to the, the real world, and his kid goes to video game camp. Um, and then Bug shows up and it turns out he has invaded the real worlds. Don't even question it. And he's palling around with LeBron and they have a great time. And then the movie's over two hours later. I did enjoy this movie. I would be lying if I said I didn't. It's honestly, it's paced pretty okay. You know, it kind of plots along a little bit in the beginning and it does take a minute before any Looney Tunes show up. Um... But it's, it's all right. Some of the jokes are a little dated, but more or less they're okay. Hans Zimmer does the score, so the music's pretty good. Even like the um, the uh, like the licensed music, I thought was pretty good as well. I was a little bummed that we didn't get, to the best of my knowledge, at least I didn't hear one. I didn't hear any of the original songs like covered. Um, and I would have I would have put money, hard money, down on that happening. Um, but then I think back and realize that like the number one song out of the original movie was "I Believe I Can Fly" by R. Kelly, and R. Kelly's a monster. So I can kind of see why that didn't happen. Um, although "Pump Up the Jam" was in this movie, um, that wasn't really like that was just a song that was popular back in the '90s. It wasn't a uh, Space Jam song. It was just used in Space Jam. I believe it was used in Space Jam. Um, yeah, I mean. It's got Looney Tunes hijinks. Um, it's got somewhat decent acting. Not like gonna blow your mind acting, but decent acting. Uh, it has more NBA players showing up. Uh, Kyrie Irving, Chris Paul, Kyle Kuzma, who's a Laker, uh, showed up. There's a, there's a great little bit where they bring in Michael B. Jordan because uh, Sylvester thinks he's Michael Jordan. Um, and they play the greatest sports intro theme song of all time, which is the Chicago Bulls 1988. 
um, which is actually an Alan Parsons project song, which I didn't know about. But that fucking song gets me hyped every time I hear it. It's fucking incredible. So yeah, that was that was a fun moment. Um, and uh, was there anything else? Um, no, nah, I think uh, I think it's oh Zendaya plays Lola Bunny, and I thought she did a she did a wonderful job. Um, oh, and I want to get this out right right as we're fucking talking about. Um, Gabriel Iglesias plays Speedy Gonzalez. And, like, here's the thing with Speedy Gonzalez. People love Speedy Gonzalez. Speedy Gonzalez came out at a time when there was zero representation of, of Latino culture. Zero on things like Looney Tunes. It didn't exist. And even though people will argue that Speedy Gonzalez is racially insensitive... Depending on who you talk to, that may not be the case. Gabriel Iglesias loved Speedy Gonzalez when he was a kid. You can the, that, there was an article about it. You can read it. And I fucking loved Speedy Gonzalez's inclusion in this movie. The the tunes that they put in this film, including Speedy Gonzalez and that big fucking red-haired motherfucker whose name I can't remember. You actually see his name like listed. I just can't remember. Oh, Gossamer. His name's Gossamer. Um. I loved that. I thought that was awesome that they brought in, like, other tunes. This movie had more Looney Tunes than the original one did. At least that were part of, like, the actual team that played. Um, I know we see a lot of them in that town hall scene in the original movie, but, I don't know, I appreciated that. Yeah, it's just, like, I liked it. I liked it. Um, and you even see, like, the little aliens from the first movie in, in the audience, and I thought that was great, too. Um, if I had to give this movie like a rating, honestly, it's probably going to be like a four out of 10 in terms of my enjoyment though, probably like an eight out of 10. I really, I really had a good time watching it. Um, I had a better time watching this movie than I did black widow. And that probably says a lot about me as a person. Um, but you know, black widow just didn't do anything interesting. This movie was kind of just. It was it, It's visually interesting to watch. I mean, at points it seems really cluttered, but the animation is really good. Um, like, in terms of the environments and the crowds and all that stuff, I just I liked it. I liked it. Currently, it has less than $200,000 in the box office, so it's definitely not breaking any records right now, and it costs $150 million to make. I don't see it beating that, but who knows? Um, what did the original Space Jam gross? Um, the original Space Jam earned uh, 230.4 million dollars worldwide. So the, I mean that's that's the number to beat, LeBron. Let's see if uh, let's see if Space Jam: A New Legacy's got what it takes to go the distance but I think that will do it for this week's episode of the Going Up cast um god no it was good I liked it I liked it a lot thank you all very much for listening I will talk to you all later on in more audiobook chapters and another podcast and who knows what else and I hope you all have a great rest of your week have a good one everyone